0: Again, we're gonna be in the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter seven, verses 13 through 25. If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up there. If not, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And if you're joining us online, that scripture will be on your screen uh, when we get to that point in the service. So for the last several weeks, we have been uh, having a conversation that we will complete uh, next Sunday. Um, And that is a conversation about how we as Christians are called to and how we can engage culture around us. Uh, while loving culture around us, loving people around us, but also honoring the Christ to whom we pledge allegiance, honoring the, the commandments uh, which Christ has given us, uh, especially those to love him with everything that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to go and make disciples. How are we to do those things whilst also operating in a world that is full of goodness, but also full of fallenness. How can we engage culture for Christ in that way? And we've kind of been looking at a book several years old, half a century old, by a guy named Richard Niebuhr, uh, who kind of asked that question of the church historically. Uh, And in his book called Christ and Culture, looks at several different ways that the church church has historically interacted with culture. Uh, And so far, we've talked about kind of the two extreme views. One is Christ against culture, uh, which is completely pulling away from culture, moving into what we would call in our vernacular today, a holy huddle uh, to the side where you live in your own separate world. You don't engage the world. uh, You don't uh, touch the world in any capacity because you want to remain pure. Uh, And while we would reject that idea when you carry it out to its ultimate conclusion, there is some good to be found in noticing that we are a different people, that we're called to a different way of life, Uh, that Christ has called us to commandments and to a way of life that aren't necessarily worldly, certainly aren't worldly. So that's the one extreme on one side. Uh, And then the other extreme would be what Niebuhr would call the Christ of culture, Uh, and that is that culture is so wonderful uh, that if we allow mankind across the world to achieve its desired end that, that it will end up in the same place that Christianity will end up uh this uh, idea isn't as popular as it was a hundred years ago uh in the time of the American roaring 20s uh when many theologians and Christians partly because they didn't know about all the suffering going on at the world at the time but they also had a really good thing going on in their world uh Thought that the world would improve and improve and improve and improve and improve until it got so perfect that that would be the time that Christ would come back and usher in the millennium. That we would, in essence, we would kind of achieve heaven on earth. And while we certainly are realistic, uh, or pessimistic, either way you want to look at it, enough in our culture today to recognize that that is not the reality, uh, that our culture does not pull us towards good things. I think we can say that generally, whether we're Christian or not, that our culture does not necessarily drift toward righteousness and goodness for all people. We can also recognize the fact that Christ speaks through the world. Christ speaks through culture, speaks through creation, speaks through art, speaks through other people in many different ways to many different people. And use that as a way to point people to the true gospel. And then last week we dove into kind of the back half of his book, which is uh, three different ways of looking at how to combine or find the middle ground between those two extremes. Uh, and we started with what he calls the synthesis version, which is kind of looking at, we can uh, do what's best for culture, we can be good and productive members of society, uh, whilst also uh, doing what's right for, for, for our, our citizenship in heaven. Realizing that culture, while it can push us towards good, still won't get us all the way, and we need that faith in Christ to achieve what only he can achieve. Today, we're going to look at the idea of paradox, uh, and how the church and culture or the Christian way and the world live in juxtaposition of one another uh, about how there is paradox not only in our culture but in ourselves in the world around us when you think of paradox it's two things two separate realities that don't seem like they can exist in the same space yet they do that's what basically a paradox is one example of a paradox would be the nature of 2020 in general. Uh, 2020 has been, I don't think it's been anybody's favorite year. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's become its own curse word, right? To say 2020, Uh, it just has a bad connotation with it. Uh, But I have talked to many people who have remarked that it was a terrible year, have also in the same conversation told me, but I remember what was really important in life. I spent some extra time with my family. Uh, I actually got out off of the hamster wheel that is the business of the American culture for a while and was able to rest and sit and be still and found out some things about myself and about my family. And so in a weird way, it kind of had some benefit. And so you have what is the worst year ever in a lot of people's estimation, while also being a year that showed us some beautiful things, that it's a paradox. Another paradox that is uh, well known in the world today and has been since World War II, uh, and that is nuclear power. Uh, Nuclear power is looked at by many energy experts as a clean, safe, if it's handled correctly, form of energy that can last a long time, that can be less expensive uh, and certainly less harmful to the environment than other forms of energy production. But we also know that nuclear energy, when harnessed for evil purposes, can literally wreak destruction to the point that we developed the term weapons of mass destruction after we developed nuclear weaponry and warfare. And so we see in nuclear power itself a paradox. And that points us to another paradox that's true about everyone here today. The paradox of what it means to be human. We are capable of great good. We are capable of love. We're capable of art. We're capable of creativity. We're capable of building societies. We're capable of many wonderful things. But we're also capable of hate. We're capable of destruction. And we're capable of bringing down entire societies. It is a paradox, the good and evil, that is present within every person on the planet. And the apostle Paul takes that idea, that idea that we all know to be true about this good and bad that wrestles back and forth within each of us. And that not only Christianity, but every worldview kind of has some estimation of that going on within our hearts. Paul takes that idea and puts it on paper and describes it. And what is one of the most easily identifiable passages in scripture. We're about to read in Romans chapter 7. At least when I read scripture, it's very easy for me to identify. Paul is in the middle of this great exposition of the gospel story in the book of Romans. Uh, telling about uh, the gospel to the people of Rome, kind of so he's telling it in a different way than he's told it to anybody else. Uh, Most scholars think that this is his, uh, as far as theology goes, this is his most developed letter, one of his latest letters. Uh, And so he has such a a grand argument uh, for why Jesus is the answer. And in particular, in the passage we're about to read, he's in context talking about the law, the Old Testament law, uh, and how it falls short of moving us exactly where we're supposed to be. Uh, And Paul, a Jew, always was afraid or bothered, and rightly so, because Jews did uh, uh, accuse him of this. He was afraid that his fellow Jews might look at him and the things that he said about the law and how the law, it's time for that old covenant to go, and it's time to trust in Christ instead, that they might look at him and say, well, Paul, you're saying that the law is evil then, right? You're saying that the law is bad, and Paul would never make that argument. Uh, And so he, in continuing the argument that the law was good, but it pointed to sin, then goes on to move into how that manifests in our own hearts in the passage we're about to read. What I want us to see this morning, when we look at the paradox going on within ourselves, to notice that that's also going on in the world and that there is a mixture of light and darkness everywhere we look, internally and externally, always at work in the world around us. But at the end of the day, Jesus is light, complete light. With no element of darkness mixed within him jesus is light all else is darkness even a mixture of light and darkness is ultimately darkness compared to the light of jesus that mixture is pointing us to something else before we open up scripture and read together let's pray one more time father we thank you for your presence here this morning we thank you for the gift of baptism for the opportunity to celebrate what you have done in us and what you are doing in us. And God, even as we see that symbolic putting the old person to death, God, all of us are here this morning still struggling with that old person, old habits, old sins. God, I pray that through your scripture this morning, God, that you would speak into that reality into the hearts of uh, everyone who struggles. And God, I pray that you would call us upward towards you and towards a better way and use us to do the same in others' lives. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Again, Romans chapter seven, verses 13 through 25. Again, Paul is talking about the law. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The two natures of the law is where Paul starts. That the law, the Old Testament law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the law expounded upon in Leviticus and Exodus. The law that God gave to Moses for the people to live their lives by all the sacrificial system. All that was constructed in a way for them to be obedient so that they might receive God's goodness, God's blessings, God's grace through obedience to the law. But If you read the Old Testament, you find that over and over again, Israel failed. And so Paul brings the question that he knows his audience must be asking, which is, am I saying that the law is bad? Am I saying that the law is evil? That's not at all Paul's argument. Instead, he basically says two things about the law. One, that it heightens the effects of sin. It makes them more readily apparent, the effects of sin, the law does. It makes sin, we can argue, more painful. Now, that doesn't seem helpful at first, but when we recognize the second part of the law, it does seem more helpful. Because while the law heightens the effects of sin, its ultimate job is to unveil the true nature of sin. The true nature of sin that has always existed in the heart of mankind, even before there was a law. How do we know that it has existed? Because we know that everyone has always been imperfect, other than Jesus himself. And that we know that in the story of Adam and Eve, that even before there was a law, People were disobedient to what God commanded. Sinfulness has always existed in the hearts of men and women, but the law makes those the effects of sin more apparent and shows us what sin is really doing. And trying to think of an adequate metaphor in order to understand this, the best that I could come up with is imagining sin as if it was a current in a river. A river that you're on a boat, and it's a very wide river at first but it's moving towards some end. You don't know what the end is, but what the end is is a waterfall and your destruction. And the current is slowly pulling you down the river. And if you've ever been on a river, on a boat with a slow current, and it's nice weather and you're fishing or you're just hanging out, you know that that can be a wonderful experience. That you can just kick back and relax because it seems like everything is fine. But what the law does is it allows us to see where we're headed by changing the situation around us. And so it's as if the law is a narrowing of the banks of the river, a narrowing of the channel. And the narrower and narrower the river gets, the faster and faster it moves to the point that where eventually it's creating a little turbulence in the boat. There are some rapids as you go over some rocks because the water is moving so swiftly. You begin to notice that things are going wrong, that things are getting bumpy, and it forces you to look up and see where you're headed. And then you see the ultimate distraction that is to come. The law in itself commits no evil against us. It just shows us and makes more readily apparent what sin is doing to us. How sin is moving us towards destruction. And how if we just keep coasting down the river, eventually we're going to find ourselves eternally separated from God. And that's not at all what God wants. So the law shows us how badly we need to be rescued. How badly we need someone to pull us out of the current. And that... Paul would go on to describe, tells us and and moves into a conversation about the two natures of ourself. Paul describes it with a lot of words that it's a little hard to follow if you're just reading through, but you know basically what he's saying. I I have what I want to do over here. I want to do what's right. I want to do good. I want to live a Christ-like life. And then I have these things over here that I know that I'm not supposed to do. All types of sin. You pick your pet sin and put it over here. I have these two things, what I want to do, and what I don't want to do. It's not just that I know this is right and this is wrong. This, this is the thing that's right. This is what I want to do. But when I find myself wanting to do that, somehow I always end up over here. Or, or I end up over here way too, more, way too often than I, than I want to. I end up doing the thing I don't want to do, and what I do want to do gets left undone. And so he says he finds it a law that when he wants to do what's good and what's right and what's holy, evil is waiting close behind. That there is always that other force, other power seeking to turn us astray. And we know that there are spiritual elements at work in that, but Paul wants to bring our attention to sin, is that element that pulls us away from Christ, that points us to a different direction, that points us towards destruction. And those things are true of us we want to do what's right we don't do what's right those things are true of us simultaneously as believers some people read romans 7 and 8 as if they're in chronological order uh, that this is what we deal with and then christ saves us and then we get to experience the glory of romans 8 which if you ever read romans 7 go ahead and read in romans 8 um, because romans 7 kind of tells us the bad news romans 8 tells us the wonder of the good news but I don't think we're reading it correctly if we read, okay, uh, you know, we're in sin, we struggle, and then we're saved and everything's fine. I I think that's missing the point. I think Romans 7 and 8 kind of exist concurrently, simultaneously, uh, that we struggle with sin while we're also saved by the Spirit, while we also live in the Spirit, that it is true that the very thing that I do want to do is what I can't do and what I don't want to do is what I end up doing. That's true, while also the truths in Romans 8, like nothing can separate me from Christ's love, are also true. Those things are true at the same moment. It's a simultaneous thing. It is a paradox that we are saved by the blood of Christ, that we are saved for an eternity with Christ, that we are saved to live a new life today. That's what we say in baptism, risen again to walk in the newness of life, that we are saved to live a different way, but we find ourselves living by the same old sin over and over again, just like everybody else on the planet. Those things exist at the same time. And that inward angst, that inward worry, that inward division is something that all people experience. And that Paul decided to actually put pen and paper to and describe for us. Paul one of the, the, the prime stars of the Christian story, uh, arguably the greatest missionary to ever live, who wrote much of the New Testament. He himself was talking about the struggle between the good and the bad that was present even within himself. In Romans, we believe, was toward the end of his career. So even an older Paul was writing this as truth about himself. The two realities of be having our mind saved by Christ and wanting to do what's right, but having our flesh pull us towards sin are true at the same moment. Martin Luther, the great theologian, would put it this way, and it's a Latin phrase. Maybe you've seen it before, maybe you haven't. But it's simul justus et peccator. Et peccator. Um, I don't know how to speak Latin, so if anybody here does, I probably didn't say that correctly. But simul justus et peccator. And what that means is Martin Luther had this belief that we are simultaneously righteous but sinners. We are simultaneously Christians and sinners at the same moment. We're righteous and unrighteous. We're sinners and we're saints. Not sometimes we're sinners and sometimes we're saints. Not we used to be sinners and now we're saints. We are, at the same time, if we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are sinners who are also saints. We're saints who are also sinners. We're unrighteous who are also righteous. We are capable of wonderful good things, and we're still, even on this side of our justification, even on this side of our baptism, we are still capable of great evil. We are both righteous and unrighteous. And this is what Paul is speaking about. This is what he is struggling with. pause for a moment. You can see this in yourself, right? Like I see it in me, but I can't see it in your head. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen on that one? I'm not the NSA or Facebook or anything. I can't know what you're thinking. I don't know what's in your head. God does, and you do. And you know, you know, unless I'm just the only one, you know that what Paul is describing is who you are. You struggle. You struggle with wanting to do what's right yet finding yourself doing the wrong thing over and over again in your relationships in your own personal moral walk in the way that you operate at work in the battle between laziness and productiveness we find ourselves constantly in this tension and then when paul has come to the end of this argument And seemingly to a low point when he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He doesn't necessarily give a ready answer to the question. He just immediately moves into praise. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to Christ Jesus. That seems like a weird transition. It seems like a hard scene change. Right in the middle of what seems like just a continuing paragraph. You know, I wonder sometimes If if we don't think about this enough in scripture These were written by human hands God inspired but by human hands I wonder sometimes if Paul uh, Writing or we think a lot of Paul's later letters He was telling somebody else what to write uh, Because he was getting older and he had bad eyesight And he couldn't write necessarily So maybe they're in the middle of doing that And it's like, okay, we need to take 10 You know, let's take a break for a second And I wonder if this is one of those points Where he's, he's He's in this description of that push and pull between good and evil that's always constant in humanity. And it gets to that point where I'm like, what am I gonna do with this? Who's gonna save me from this? This seems like a hopeless situation. And then maybe he goes and takes a break, gets a breath, comes back, begins to rot again and is reminded of who will save him from his body of death. See, it's when he gets to his lowest point that he finds his greatest strength. There's another paradox for you. It is when we have no hope that our greatest hope is realized. Scripture tells us those kind of paradoxes over and over again. It is when we are weak that Christ is strong within us. Christ tells us that in order to truly live, we must die to ourselves. Christ tells us that in order to truly be free, we must be his Servants and servanthood to Christ is an expression of true freedom. It is paradoxical reality. And perhaps the biggest paradox of all time is the God who became man and experienced and tasted death in order to deliver to us eternal life. Who used death as the vehicle by which we all may experience life forever and ever and ever. That, if that's not a paradox, I don't know what is, and it speaks into a paradoxical world in which even our bodies are simultaneously experiencing life and death. I mean that on a physical level. Your body is creating new cells, but old cells are also dying. Every second that we sit here, that is happening. Your body is both living and dying right now, right here. Now, it might be a little freaky to think about, but that is what's going on even as we sit here and talk. But our minds are also full of life and death we we think thoughts that that can pull us to new heights that can motivate us that can inspire us whether they're christian thoughts or or secular thoughts we can watch a movie that is christian in no way but will pull us to some height because it is inspiring and calls us to a better life and to and to go and achieve We have that part of our mind and then we also have the part of our mind that's telling us you can't do anything. You're lousy, you're lazy, you're unproductive. Why bother trying? Somebody else can do it better. Just go home and go to sleep and let life pass you by. Existing at the same time in our brains. We are walking paradoxes. We are saved yet not fully saved what many theologians have called before and I've used this term before with you I'm sure the already and the not yet of our salvation that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ we have been justified we have been made right but that Christ continues to work on us and that salvation will not be fully completed until he calls us home it's why Paul tells us to work on our salvation with fear and trembling it's why Paul reminds us that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it Because we are works in progress. God is still working within us. We have been saved yet not fully realized what that salvation means and we won't until we are in God's kingdom for eternity. And so if we are paradoxes, it only seems logical that all of humanity, that our culture, that our societies, would be paradoxical as well, capable of love and hate, capable of good and evil. And this is what we see when we look at the world. Again, whether it's wearing Christian clothes or not, this is what we see when we look at the world. We see in every sector of the world, even people with worldviews wildly different than yours capable of of loving people and loving them well, loving them as if they were themselves, which is the second greatest commandment, according to Christ. We see a world that is capable of of building these these structures and ways of living, these societies and governments, uh, in order to allow people to be free, yet also safe. And in walking that fine line, here in less than a week and a half, you're going to get to go to a ballot box, and many of you have likely already done it if the numbers are true, you're going to get to go to a ballot box and you are going to get you, little old you, if you're 18 or over, you're going to go to a ballot box and you are going to get to put your vote as to how the future of our country should go. That's a beautiful thing. It's It's a wonderful thing. The ideals of our country are built upon beautiful and wonderful things that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights and among them are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that's a beautiful testimony but the same is true that we have never as a nation or as a people lived up to that never in our nation's history has really everyone lived and treated each other equally nor have we been wonderful all of the time at providing liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to everyone. Yes, we do it well, and we should be happy with what we're doing, but we also know that we still have a lot of room to grow. And even while we go and cast our ballot, we know that with that wonderful political process that we call Democratic Republic, with that wonderful thing that we think is the best form of government that's ever been created, that also comes with it all of the political ads that we have to watch on television also comes with it in the new era people from the Democratic and Republican camps somehow getting our cell phone numbers and texting us. My mom got a text at 1130 last night from a Republican operative asking for money for Donald Trump. Now, nothing against the Democrats are doing the same thing. Please don't take that as any kind of slice at them. But it's just an example of what's going on. Can I get an amen from that? Everybody tired of that. Everybody wished that that part would go away. Everybody wished they could watch the local Dallas news and not watch the five-minute commercial breaks politicians on both sides slinging mud at one another. Other and trying to tear each other down, I'm ready for a cleanse on that one, right? I'm hoping that that, that that goes away after November the 3rd, at least for four more years or two more years at least. And so we see in the beauty that is this government, we see how we also, also are capable of ruining each other through it and tearing each other down through it. So what is true about us individually that Paul is talking about is true about us collectively. It's true about us culturally, but like Paul looks at it individually, we can recognize that fight within us pointing us to something that is incorruptible elsewhere talking about the life that is to come he says when the perishable puts on the imperishable when the mortal puts on the immortality when when the corruptible puts on the incorruptible talking about what will happen when we enter into the kingdom of heaven that there is a day coming where there will be perfection without any hint of imperfection i don't know about you but i can't imagine that i was born in sin just like the rest of everybody on the planet I can't imagine perfection without any element of imperfection, because I've never known what that is like, but that is what we will experience in heaven, because I don't know about you, but I've wondered, I've caught myself wondering through the years sometimes, especially in in my sinful moments, wondering, okay, so in heaven, there's not gonna be any sin, but I know me, like I know me well, you're telling me that that part of me is gonna be gone, I can't imagine myself without that temptation. Yet heaven tells us that not only will there not be sin, there won't be death. There won't be mourning or crying or pain for all of those things have gone and behold, the new has come. Can you imagine that? Like there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to in heaven. Seeing people that have passed on before, certainly being in the presence of Jesus for eternity. Uh, checking out the, 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 new, the new crib, you know, looking at, at everything and how awesome it's gonna be. I, I'm excited for all of that. But the idea of like leaving my own selfish, prideful, sinful self behind, Woo! that might be one of the most amazing things about heaven, that like that part of me is going to be gone. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, is anything going to be left? Like, I, you know, is there any part of me that's not sinful? And that's how we're so mixed together swirled together good and evil but it points us to someone who is just good and who is only good for eternity and that is what salvation looks like in a paradoxical world we are sinners saved by grace stumbling our way to perfection we're not going to realize it at least i don't think so on this side of heaven I don't think perfection is possible on this side of heaven. But we are stumbling our way there, working out our salvation, seeking to find the one who will finish the good work that he started in us, knowing that one day it will come, knowing that one day we will rest, knowing that one day we will sin no more, knowing that one day this angst that Paul describes in Romans 7 so eloquently will be a thing of the past ever in all ways you imagine that no more guilt no more second-guessing that thing that you said that you thought might be rude to somebody no more worrying about the grudge that you've had for 15 years with that one person no more worrying about Oh man I didn't say what I needed to say to this person before they pass I wish I could have one more chance none of that only perfection only good and the paradox of good and evil in our world points us to a place where paradox is done, where there is no more paradox, where it's only Jesus and it's only good. And how we can use that in our fallen world is to tell people once again, oh, there is beauty in you. You bear the fingerprints of God. He created you in his image, yet you know and I know that there's also some imperfections. You know what, though? Somebody came to destroy those imperfections. Somebody came to bear your punishment. And on the cross of Calvary, about 2,000 years ago, God, who lived in human skin, was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, and nailed to the cross for our sake. He bore our burden not only on the cross, visible from what we could see, but what was going on behind the scenes. The death that God himself was experiencing both physically and spiritually. God did that so that he could solve the paradox for us once and for all. So that he could destroy sin and death once and for all. And there is a place to which you and I if we follow Christ are going in which we will no longer struggle we will simply be in the presence of goodness always forever completely and we get to tell the world about that as well and so when we notice the good and bad in the world the mixture of it let us use that as a reminder to the world that there's something behind it that's pointing you to something perfect Let me tell you about Jesus. During this time of response this morning, as we sing one more worship song together with our band, I would encourage you that if you do not know uh, Jesus as Savior, to consider what that might look like today. And if you would like to talk about what it would mean to follow Jesus, I would love to tell you about what it can mean for you and about how he loves you and has forgiven you and has planned for you, not just in eternity, but right here, right now, today. If you want to talk about that, I'll be down here to pray with you while we're singing. I'll also hang around after the service if you'd rather talk with some privacy. I would love to talk with you about that if you're interested at all. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, I would just ask you to spend some time in prayer with God right now. To look inwardly and to consider the paradox that is yourself. Thank God for the goodness. Thank God for the light. And ask him to pull you more into the light to continue to do that work of salvation in you To rest with the fact that you're never going to be perfect, at least on this side of heaven, and that the perfection is coming. And then, more to the point, ask for him to show you how you can be some of that light in a light and dark world, and how people who are lost in that malaise that Paul is talking about in Romans 7, how you can point them to the one thing where there is no paradox, there's only beauty. Who might God be leading you to talk to today? During our time uh, of invitation, I encourage you to pray along those lines. The altar's open. If you want to pray there, I'm here to pray with you about this or anything else. You can certainly always pray where you're at, but let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to come and lead us in one more song. And as they do, may you spend this time with God and respond however he's calling you to. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth and for your presence. God, we thank you for the beauty of your word. God, we thank you for servants like Paul who listened and and wrote and shared truth, your truth, with us. And continue to do so today through the documents they left behind. God, I pray that that truth would take root in the hearts of your followers this morning. And that once it had taken root, Lord, that it would bear fruit. And that, God, while we will always, on this side of heaven, be in that tension between good and evil, God, I pray that you help us to see to the other side so that we might enter more into the light today and so that we might invite others to come into the light with us. Pray that in Jesus' name.